This is Secrets to Win Big, your roadmap to sustained growth. Brought to you by Arjun Sen, founder and CEO of Zen Mango, top brand growth driver and a former Fortune 500 executive who has been called one of the most marketing intelligent minds in the business. Find him at zenmango.com. And now, here's your host, Arjun Sen. Welcome to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen. Hi, I'm Arjun. And today, based on the smile on my face, you guys can sense that this will be a conversation I have been looking for for a long time. First, let me introduce my VIP guest, Ken Caldwell, who is currently the CMO and SVP of Innovation at Compassion International, where he's responsible for the brand's marketing and innovation, but more importantly, creating long-term connections and relationships with all stakeholders. Prior to this, Ken held senior leadership roles at Domino's Pizza, Wendy's, Papa Murphy's, Pillsbury, and he started his career at Pillsbury. And then he was at Pizza Hut, where I was very fortunate to work with him. Now, there are a few things that really intrigue me, fascinate me, and I've become a fan of Ken. One is how he has brought the highest level of branding expertise to the nonprofit industry with his passion and vision. The second one, please bear with me, it's a slightly long story. I was golfing in Denver when this gentleman I was golfing with introduced himself as one of the major franchisees in the Colorado region for Wendy's. And immediately I had to ask him, do you know Ken Colbert? But the moment I asked, I was somewhat hesitant because you know, many times our cool friends as we grow up, you know, they get into the corporate role and they just become different. And I didn't want Ken Colbert to change. So this guy looked at me and says, Ken, oh, I know him very well. I love him. This is a man who cares about every franchisee's success. He cares about the brand. And I could listen to this man till the end of time. And I was so happy that Ken Colwell, through all his success, has been the same. And I think that's something I really want to hit on today is that continuity and authenticity of Ken Colwell. And on a lighter note, but any time I talk to any friend of mine, what defined Ken Colwell is the big laughter from his heart with which he greets you every time. So Ken, with that introduction, welcome to Secrets to Invic. Thank you, Arshan. Great to be with you. So Ken, first of all, it's an amazing career. You know that, you've heard that. And let's start with your restaurant career. Four major organizations. And the first, let's talk about Pizza Hut. You know, those are days you have just come from Pillsbury, lot of amazing experience from the packaged goods, but you're new in the food industry. And a lot of us, when we start our careers, we really do not know what to do. So what was the things from Pizza Hut how did it help you prepare for future success? And what advice do you have for those of us who are just starting our career for the first few years of our career? Yeah, thank you, Arjun. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. Um, as Arjun said, I, I came into Pizza Hut and uh, um, one of the first things was that uh, I think what I realized was Pizza Hut is a, in the food service category, food service business, but um, 
the thing I really realized very quickly when I joined was the service part of that word is really important. And uh, it's not just the food service business, you have entered the service business. And I think uh, in my you know, 33, 34 years in that, in that sector, what I really learned was as I watched people come and go into that sector was it, 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 it is definitely for some people and it's not for everyone. Um, it's the service business. And I think you're, you're either wired and passionate about service and serving others. And, and that's, that's what, what, what really fuels you or it's not. And uh, so for me, I mean, one, one quick story on that was that my very, it's funny. I think, you know, as you look back in your career, how much your first job really shapes you. And uh, for me, my very first job was actually when I was about 12, almost 13 years old. And I, I like a lot of boys my age, I think, you know, started uh, mowing lawns. Um, and uh, at the time, I didn't think about the deeper meaning of that or the learning or whatever. But what I really learned, and as I, because I, I uh, started by mowing just, you know, a neighbor's yard, and, and then she recommended me to a friend, and I mowed their yard, and then she recommended me to her doctor friend, and I started marrying, started mowing the doctor's lawn. And uh, it built into a very large business where I had four guys working for me and, and uh, did it for over 10, did it for over nine years, almost 10 years and uh, paid my way through school. And, but what I really learned about that business was that um, it taught me about a service business um, and the importance of the who in that, you know, who you're serving. And um, I know that, you know, from the age of 13, you know, as you start to, to uh, knock on these doors and meet these people and mow their yards uh, and, and, and actually start to learn other things that they need done around their home and help them with that, you start to really learn without even realizing it, the importance of service and, and, and the importance in service of knowing whom you're serving and starting with that and understanding not only who they are, but what they need and why they need it. And, uh, and just for an example, it's funny, um, when I look back on that lawn business, there were, there were people, yes, that just needed me to come mow their yard, and that's what they were looking for, you know, a quality mowing job, and, and that was it. There were others that had other things around the home that they needed, snow shoveling in the winter, or edging of the yard, or taking trash out, or painting, or whatever the case may be. But there were others that I learned things about over time that they just wanted to have most of these people were older clients, uh, older people that couldn't do this on their own. Many of them were alone and uh, didn't see family as much. And you learned subtle things uh, that weren't obvious that some of these you know, older clients just wanted to have somebody to come and connect with and talk with. And so some of my clients, I would just schedule extra time either before or after the mo job just to be able to spend time talking, walking around the lawn with them. And so there was a, a part of it that you were, you were really just, you know, uh, serving them as people who were lonely. And uh, so it's much more than a lawn business when I look at it over the 10 years that I had it. And the reason I tell that story is, is that uh, that's a very impressionable time. You know, you're 13 until you're almost 23. And uh, you learn that at such an early age. And I, I really liked it. And I remember the first year I went off to graduate school and I didn't have my lawn business anymore. I missed it severely. I mean, I missed the people. I missed the connection. I missed the, 
serving needs of somebody um, and, um, and, and feeling like you're making a difference in their lives. And, um, and I missed it terribly. I, I, I was at that age, couldn't figure out what I missed. I had to really think about it, but, but wow, it was a, it was a real life change for me. When I came to Pizza Hut, as Arjun was uh, referencing, um, that was probably uh, one of the first attractions was, I think, I think I like service businesses. I wasn't sure, but I, but I think I really like them. I know I like the lawn service business. Do I like the food service business? And the fact was, it was one of the fastest and easiest transitions I ever made. Uh, it was much easier to me than working in the packaged goods industry at Pillsbury, where I've been before. And that was primarily because it was a, a service business what I was really wired to do. And I think the second thing I'd say, which is related is that service type businesses, they, as I said earlier, they have to start with the who, who are you serving? And what I loved about uh, Pizza Hut was as a service business, um, you could go right out to, the, to where the action really happened, which was in the, in the pizza stores, in the restaurants. And you could watch very quickly and get very quick feedback on when you were actually addressing a, a real need of a consumer and when you were not. And it was obvious and it was quick. Uh, and that quick, fast feedback of, you know, <laughs> that sometimes is not what you wanted to hear, but at least you got clear black and white answers that you were either on target with the serving a need that was need necessary or not. Just like I got that very fast feedback when I was mowing people's lawns. And I just, I just feed off of that. It, it, it creates energy. So I think one pizza was a service business that, that fit me really well. And I think that's a question everybody has to ask themselves is, is a service business right for me? Does it, does it, is it something I'm passionate about Two, It was the, uh, starting with the who starting with a, the customer and being able to get very fast feedback of when I was successful and when I failed third, um, I would say uh, that Pizza Hut was very good at allowing us to take pretty big risks at a pretty early in our career. And I think the reason is, is that we could do tests and anytime the risk was too large, you could just make the test smaller, either go to fewer markets or fewer stores or involve fewer franchise owners, whatever the case may be to manage the overall risk. And then if that test was successful, you could enlarge that test for a round two. And that allowed us to take fairly large risks and continue to move forward. And that, that to me is one of the best ways to learn. A, a saying that I remember I, 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 uh, I started in, in the time I was at Pizza was dream big, test small, learn fast, repeat. And, and you could really live that there. And then finally, a fourth thing that I thought was uh, very, very much a good fit with Pizza with me um, that maybe some can relate to is they allowed me and actually encouraged me to make fairly frequent rotations to uh, differing areas of the business. Um, and so I got exposure to field marketing and home office marketing, national marketing, media, marketing research. I was able to do rotations in different areas. And that taught me a few things. One, uh, what I was not good at and what I was good at. And it allowed me to to have empathy and understanding for fellow team members and what, what they had to do in their particular area. And which I think ultimately made me a better general manager or leader. So those were the four big things that I think were um, very helpful about, about uh, Pizza. One last thing I'd say, Arjun, to the second part of your question is 
some of the learnings I got out of that that I think maybe are helpful for folks early in their careers is one, as I said, are, are you wired? Are you passionate about the service business or not? Um, that, so getting in the right category of business, I think is important. Two, um, starting with the who, you know, just teaching yourself of going into business early on in your life and career where you get exposed to starting with the who, starting with the, the, the customer you're serving uh, so you can start to develop a real strong curiosity about their needs and how to serve them. And third, and, and I, I think an organization that's willing to take some risks and allow you to do a lot of testing and learning. And then fourth and finally, uh, I love an organization that allows you to rotate to differing assignments. And I, and I, it, it was very good for me to be able to rotate into those different assignments. Sometimes, you know, I got used to, I think another thing that really built in me was I got used to not being good at something. <laughs> and so I would rotate into one role and I, I, I was a rookie. I didn't know anything. And so I'd ask lots of questions and learn and learn and learn. And just when I got it learned, they'd rotate me to another assignment. And I have to go through the same cycle again and be that person that says, I don't know anything, help me here. And that developed, that, that helps develop a sense of humility and intellectual curiosity, which I think are both really strong characteristics for, for, for managing or growing your career. You know, as I'm listening to you, Ken, you know, first on a lighter note, if somebody is listening and has any connection to Guinness Book of World Records, they should really investigate this young kid Ken Caldwell, lawnmower king, who, and this part I think is very important, is over 10 years, created a path for year-to-year double-digit growth. Because I really think that that's the part where, as you were talking about the connection, what really helped me is big success comes from the four or five things you talked about, is you talked about service starts with knowing people going above and beyond. Second, you talked about service starts with real connections. Just knowing is not good enough, it's the connections. And also, you know, there's the part that really hit home was when you talked about when you moved away from that business and, you know, career and education and everything else, you were missing it, which again tells me the depth of a connection is when you have to move on in life, you, life, you miss it. And I think that one line you talked about, I think is very important for all of us. I'm going to write it down, is dream big, test small, learn fast and repeat. And the big question, is this business for me? You know, Ken, also there was another story from Pizza Hut days, which to me signifies leadership. You know, that's the day we, you, not all of us go back to was, I just think, you know, Pizza Hut or whatever the reasons, Bigfoot, pizza did not fly that well. And, but what I remember is when the project, you know, we were moving on to the next big project. That day, Ken Caldwell, who was my internal client, he had sent me a memo celebrating everything I had done on this project. And what was very important for me was Ken Caldwell that day put in perspective that Arjun, stop doing what you were doing, build on it, and together we can take this learning to the next big success. And that, I think, has been one of the big things of a leader, is a leader, instead of trying to, you know, put a bandaid on his own wound, first takes care of everybody else in the team. And that, I think, moves me to the next big role is Domino's. When you join Domino's, 
Yeah. It was, you know, you don't bring those days Domino's pizza for your best friend. Okay. Maybe for your in-laws, you bring it. That's the brand position, in my humble opinion, that was there. And today the brand has made an amazing turnaround, and that had started with you and your team's tenure. What was the secret to put a brand and turn it around and put it on the path to win big? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, it was a it was a real team effort. And I I um Dominus was really interesting because uh, when they originally called me uh, for the role, uh, I competed against Dominus and um, I respected certain things that they did, uh, you know, delivering a pizza faster than anybody else in the, in the category, uh, et cetera. But I didn't respect them as marketers. I didn't at the time, uh, this is 2000, 2000, 2001. And I really didn't see, uh, how they were growing their brand in an innovative and building their brand in an innovative way. And, uh, and so I was called and uh, multiple times I said no uh, before I ultimately said uh, yes and, and agreed to join. Um, and when I, when I did join the team there, you, first you just went into a deep period of learning about the brand. And uh, if I just summarize the learning, um, Domino's had a proud history of creating delivery, the, deliver the food delivery category. Uh, and they had seen that the, the need for convenience uh, was so powerful as more and more uh, women were uh, coming out of college with degrees and going into the workforce and uh, getting bigger and bigger jobs, uh, dual income families, people's, um, the value of time was growing like crazy. And so I really respected Domino's ability to deliver a pizza very fast and have you know, delivery locations around the country and be, be very convenient. But the, the quality of the product was very poor. Um, and, but before I used my own judgments, again, one of the first things I did is I was like, well, let's go to the who, you know, who, who is their target? Who are they, who are they? Uh, maybe their target thinks their pizza is great, you know? So let me, let me go do research with the target. And when I got there, what I found was they had really not completed a, a serious, deep marketing research in a quantitative and qualitative way, the way I was used to at Pizza Hut. And so Domino's did not have the kind of deep research on their consumer. Secondly, they had not really identified a clear target consumer to go after. They had a broad target, but not a clear specific target. And when I dug into that a little bit, I found out that primarily they were focused, they would define their target as young males. And that made sense, right? Because young males eat a lot of pizza and young males want pizza when they're, when they're hungry, they want it fast <laughs> uh, before the blood sugar drops. And so, so I understood that. Um, but even when I interviewed young males, I found out that um, while they appreciate the pizza coming fast, they didn't have very good things to say about the quality of the pizza either. The second thing I learned in the segmentation study was there was a second segment, um, not young males. In fact, very almost the opposite, uh, moms. Moms, uh, usually moms who were uh, you know, multiple kids in the family uh, that worked either part-time or full-time and were uh, seeking convenience like crazy. They were kind of a hidden market for Domino's. And in that learning, I learned that 
they were the gate. When I first shared that learning with the uh, with leadership at Domino's, it was like, well, but they don't eat. Come on, moms don't eat that much pizza compared to uh, young males. How big of an opportunity can they be? But what we learned as we dug into it is, moms may not themselves eat as much pizza as a young male, but moms are the gatekeeper. They're the ones that make the choice for the family many times of what pizza they order. And those same moms I interviewed with, we called, uh, at the time, we called Soccer Mom Sarah um, as the segment. That group of moms um, had a lot of things going for them. One, they were the gatekeeper, as I said, said so they, they bought a lot of pizza for the family. Number two is they very much highly valued convenience and speed and accuracy of orders, which are all things that, that Domino's was good at. But third, they, they needed a certain base level of quality and quality defined a lot of ways which I won't go into, but they, 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 they expected a certain level of quality. Well, that turned out to be a really key insight because what we learned was by taking our base level of quality up and two, two really importantly, offering and being the, one of the first movers in online ordering. And I know that sounds ancient now, but at the time, 2001, 2002, 2003, online ordering almost didn't exist. And so we were on the very front edge of that and we made a major investment in online ordering to really do it, do it, to do it, do it right, do it well. And uh, what we found, which was interesting, was when I first shared this insight with everybody, they said, oh my gosh, we've got you know, uh, young males over here and th their needs. And we've got moms, you know, educated moms uh, that are the gatekeepers of their households. These two don't have anything in common. How, how are we going to take our marketing budget and split it and get both of these groups? But the insight was kind of the Venn diagram on it was there was a major overlap between those two in a couple of areas. One is they both wanted convenience. They both wanted the pizza to be delivered, the pizza to be delivered conveniently, fast, and accurately. Um, and, and hot when it was when it, when it came. We could do that and do it well. We did that better than anybody else. Two is they wanted, um, uh, they not only wanted that, they wanted to know the order was accurate and they could have some control over it. That's where we created the online ordering and the pizza tracker, the Domino's pizza tracker, which you, you may have seen in the, in the industry, which was one of the first of its kind. Those things were the hotspot, the Venn diagram, the overlap between those two segments. And Really, uh, that combination of upping the quality of our product, committing to online ordering and to do online ordering, we wanted to be best in class in that. Um, and to, to make a, a digital app that allowed people to track their order and see, have visibility to their order all the way through, the, that combination uh, combined with some fantastic advertising uh, from our agency partners uh, really, really led to the resurgence of the brand. Um, and uh, and a turnaround when we when I joined in 2001, they had declining same store sales, declining traffic, franchisee satisfaction was really dropping, and and I I won't say at an all time low, but it was low, um, and uh, we were able to put a team together and, and identify these insights and uh, roll it out, and uh, a lot of really positive things happened. Uh, the growth of the brand, the growth of sales, the growth of market share. Uh, and uh, franchise satisfaction, and it was just a, a really great learning period of time. You know, thanks for sharing that. And as you were talking about online ordering, you know, at the same time, you and I were on competitive sides. I was on the other side, 
1996, I joined Papa John's. And, you know, what we realized was on a given Saturday, Sunday, it takes 45 minutes to place an order. And if you get drop the call or something, you start again at the beginning. And we made a board presentation. And those days we had those transparencies that you put on top of a projector with a tiny guy, which is the customer. And the big person looking on top is the order taker. And our president talked about how no business can survive long-term by making the customer feel powerless. And that was the same thing as you guys were working at Domino's, at Papa John's too, the whole thrust was there. And you know, from a bigger picture, what you accomplished at Domino's recently, you know, with Uber evolving to the food industries, Amazon, the only brand this expert analyst was talking about that is in a position to get there to own all food delivery is Domino's. And I think credit goes to you and your team on how you set Domino's from delivery experts to eventually where they want to go, which again, I do not know, but I really think that's an amazing story to look at. And the big aha in that story is knowing when to do research, but more importantly, how to do research, because research to me is just a tool. If you don't know how to use it, it's just like an amazing exercise machine which sits there and you can hang your clothes on it, but doesn't work. So the next question is, you know, I just want to move to Wendy's and, you know, the big thing I want to learn is, did you move to Wendy's because you were getting tired of pizza, you know, Pizza Hut, Domino's, or was there any reason? What was the reason for choosing Wendy's? And what was the success story there? Yeah, all the Frosties you could eat every day, Arjun, <laughs> all the Frosties you could eat every day. It was a true story. Dave Thomas, I got to go out to Dave Thomas's home, uh, the founder of Wendy's, and uh, uh, it was always very one of his homes. It was very fun to go to his home, and, and uh, he'd serve dinner, and we'd have a group service dinner, and then um, and then he would come around afterwards. He had a frosty machine in his home, mm. and uh, he would personally serve you frosties, and then that, that was one of the best tasting frosties I think I ever had. But uh, but no, on Wendy's, I think um, what a, it was really interesting. Uh, uh, a friend of mine uh, had become the CEO there, and uh, he was really. Uh, as they were coming in as a new management team, uh, they were really looking for uh, kind of a, a bit of a turnaround as well. Uh, again, declining same-store sales, really low negative traffic uh, at the time. Franchise satisfaction was declining and, and again, moving towards an all-time low. There was, you know, the legal issues that come a time sometimes without with uh, lack of franchise satisfaction. And it was, it was, it was a, it was a bad time for Wendy's. And, uh, Again, the starting point there was, uh, I, I sound uh, repeating myself, but really st starting with the who again, it was, uh, well, who is, who's our target? And uh, do we have a clear, have we clearly differentiated our, our brand on who the target was? Because I'll tell you what, in that category, it's a little different because you've got McDonald's and, uh, and Burger King, which both have much larger budgets, particularly McDonald's, much larger budgets than Wendy's much bigger advertising budgets, and they can kind of, it, it's subtle at first, but they can kind of um, over time wear you down and, and uh, uh, start to make, have you make compromises and start to copy them a bit and start to play their game. And in my opinion, that's what Wendy's had started to do. When I joined, 
they had uh, watered down or almost eliminated their uh, value menu. Uh, they had taken uh, cost out of their food, which you've got to do over time, but they'd done it to such a degree that the quality of the food had uh, dropped a lot. And, and, and it, made it made made it less of a gap in quality uh, on most of their products versus McDonald's and Burger King. And, and when I listened to them talk about their, uh, their consumer, um, it was, it had kind of gotten more generic. They, they, they were talking more about, um, more of a generic description of their target versus kind of grouping together. Well, families like us, moms like us, you know, and, and when I really dug into the research, I actually found it was really interesting. There were two distinct customers that we did particularly well with. And again, I'm gonna, I'm, it's going to be similar to the last story. They were very different consumers. Customers. The uh, one was uh, moms, moms of discerning, moms that believed that they wanted a kind of a, a cut above, uh, higher quality. Fresh beef meant something to them. They wanted uh, uh, they wanted real salads, you know, salads with with, with real quality ingredients, etc. So the ingredients were important to them, the food quality, etc. And then we had another group. Uh, which was interesting. It was working men, a um, little bit more blue collar, um, not all blue collar, but a little bit more blue collar, but working men who had a heartier appetite and, uh, uh, and really appreciated some of the, uh, the, the, the way they to start to talk about it was not, not kids food or, 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 or size food, but like manly portions and, and uh, where you could really fill you up whether that was our chili or our baked potatoes or our bigger doubles and triples, but just that was an audience. Now those are two different audiences. And again, it's like, wow, do we split our budget between those two? And what we really learned was um, it was a balancing act, but you had to, and there's two ways to balance, right? I think what Wendy's had done to balance is they'd said, instead of saying some people want hot and some people want cold, they had made everything kind of lukewarm to try to appeal to everybody. And so what, my job was, and what I felt like I, I was able to lead was, let's, let's, if someone wants something over here, I'm just using this as an example, but someone wants something hot, we're going to get it hot. Something wants something cold, it's going to be cold. We're going to stay out of the lukewarm space. So what's an example of that? Simultaneously, I was working on the Baconator, okay, which you, and, and, and launching the Baconator with, think about that, you know, on a triple at three patties of beef and two slices of bacon per patty of beef. I mean, that's a big, big man, you know, hamburger uh, for hearty appetites. And simultaneously, I was working on completely overhauling their salad line and developing a whole new line of salads with fresh greens, fresh tomatoes, you know, artisan uh, salad dressings that were built particularly for each salad. And going from a, and by the way, at the same time, going from a, a $2.29 price point on those salads to a launch point of $3.59. In the restaurant world, in the, in the hot hamburger world, that's a huge change in price. Those two things I was doing simultaneously. Why? Targeting these salads very much to that, uh, that, that discerning mom buyer and very much targeting the Baconator type products that we developed for the men. And um, and what we found was by being very specific, very targeted and not getting people kind of what they wanted, but exactly what they wanted and almost going further than anybody had gone 
on those products uh, was usually successful. Uh, that combined with people always say, well, are you value, are you price value or are you quality? Well, I think you've got to figure out how to do those both well too. So while we were launching literally a Baconator that what, especially in the double and triple varieties were one of the highest hamburger price points in the entire category and taking our salads from, as I said, 229, 239 to 359, 69, 79, eventually 429, which was a huge price increase in the, in the category while doing that, our super value menu of our 99 cent items, we relaunched that uh, and relaunched it uh, with, I think it was nine, nine items for 99 cents, which was really hard to do with the food costs at the time. And that balance strategy uh, of appealing, continuing to, to keep your value perceptions, your price value perceptions pretty high by, as I say, there's numerator and denominator of the value equation, right? Uh, by, by, by making sure that the numerator of quality uh, was taken up higher in innovation at the same time as keeping price low with super value menu, that formula worked really well for us. We got, we, we turned traffic around, uh, didn't make double digit traffic, but we, we made high single digit traffic uh, from, from, from a trend of, from going from negative to a high single digit traffic increase. And then definitely drove our same store sales with that franchise satisfaction went up and uh, it was a really fun time on the brand. Awesome. And, you know, a few takes, and I think that's the common thread between all the stories is the who, but also what I'm learning is for every segment, there's a quality threshold. The moment you fall below that, it doesn't work. You know, another thing what I'm learning is once you know the segment, the wrong product, the wrong quality, even at a lower price does not work. And finally, I think, you know, especially in this example, what I also learned again, listening to you was before it was McDonald's and Burger King with their amazing media budget. We're, act, we're acting like the category leaders. But what I learned is a true category leader is one who can earn a price increase. That I think is the really proof of shaping the category. And the 229 to 359, it's a big deal. It's a big deal, especially in QSR. So thanks for sharing that. So now Thank I'm going you. to go into Papa Morphe's and I want to hear talk about not food, but at a very different level. Because again, this is one of the things I've seen, and you may have seen this too, is a lot of incredible, talented individuals achieve incredible success in the functional area of marketing, finance, legal, or I could have stopped at marketing because is there anything other than marketing on this planet? But when they get to the president and the CEO level, they're transitioning to a leader they struggle. So what has helped you successfully transition to a CEO president? And what's your advice to other CEOs when they move to the highest, like a CMO, CFO, COO to a CEO? What should they watch out for and what should they do? Yeah, that's a really good question, Arjun. It's, it's interesting. I never, I think a lot of people set out, not a lot, a lot of people set out to, to um, to, to, to set their sights on the top job. And, and whether they say it or it's said or unsaid, they're like, yeah, well, I eventually would plan or want to be the CEO. And that was just not the case for me. Uh, it really wasn't. I, uh, you know, I grew up in a family, no, no, nobody went to college and uh, uh, 
And so I just, you know, my dad's advice was always kind of what was ringing in my head when you said that, Arjun. It, my dad always said, you know, just find someone that you love to serve, uh, find something uh, that you feel like uh, you can do a good job on in serving those people and just just do it with all your heart. And if you find that, he said, it really won't be work. It'll come natural. And I, and I think that's really good advice because when I think about your question on Papa Murphy's, it was interesting because it wasn't that I, I was seeking a, a CEO role. It was um, I, I really learned over time in my career that um, the closer I could be to the action of where someone was being served um, and the, 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 the more motivating that was for me. So what really attracted me was I had been in the food service business uh, now for, you know, at the time I went to Papa Murphy's probably for 26, 27 years. And I knew that I not only, I've talked a lot today about really the customer that I, I could really uh, get passionate about serving. And, and that's true. Um, but what I also learned was that um, in these businesses, you serve others as well. Uh, you're at that, in that CEO position, you're serving the customer, but you're also serving team members, many, many team members across the country. They ultimately, you're serving all of them, everything from minimum wage employees to, you know, Harvard MBAs on your staff, you're serving that very, very diverse group. Um, and then you're serving franchise owners, small business owners. And I think, Eugene, to your question, it, it was great to be in a position where you're serving all three of those groups. And, and yes, when you, when we took the company public, then we're also serving, you know, our financial stake stakeholders as well. But for me, what, what was really easy to get passionate about was when I would go out and visit with our franchise owners, the folks who had uh, given all they had, given their money, given their time, sometimes their family's time to invest in a small business. And uh, in some of those cases, these are people that uh, started with just very little and they were depending upon this business to be successful for them to provide for their family. And uh, what was really interesting, I'd started this at the end of my time at Pizza Hut and I've kept it ever since, um, which is whenever I received a, a letter from a franchisee or franchise owner uh, that would say, thank you. Uh, hey, thank you for doing that last new product. It, it, it grew sales and uh, we were able to have a successful month. But other letters I got, which were even more specific, I have a letter from a woman in Chicago that I have to this day. And she wrote me a letter, she's a franchise owner. And she basically shared that uh, prior to my joining the company, she had uh, she and her husband had owned a franchise uh, of, of uh, two pizza stores and things had declined and declined and they eventually had to close one of the stores and they had to go from managing the stores to actually working and making pizzas in the stores. And then when they had children, because they weren't making enough money, they had to place their children in a school, a public school that was close by, which was in a really bad neighborhood. And she talked about her sleepless nights uh, and her stress of uh, 
fear for her children going to school in this really, really bad and, and violent neighborhood. And she said, the reason I'm writing this letter is um, you and your team tested this new product, uh, new product line, uh, and launched this new product line. And uh, you followed it up with some line extensions to that product line. And she said, over the past year and a half, our sales have increased so much that we have been able to generate enough income to buy two additional pizza stores. So we now have three. And she says, um, which, which has allowed us to spend all of our time hiring people and training them, not working in the store anymore. And she goes, most importantly, we now have been able to afford to move to a nicer neighborhood where I can send my kids to a school where they can be safe and I can sleep at night knowing that they're going to be safe at school when they come back. That's just an example of one letter that I received, but those are precious to me. When you, when you get those kind of letters, you feel like, wow, I'm being used. My, my gifts are being used in this world to make somebody else's life better and allow them to impact their children, maybe their children's education, their children's safety, their children's health, um, the family's health and well-being. Um, I'm having some impact on that. And I kept every one of those letters. I currently have four files, <laughs> four files in my file drawer that I, my joke with my, my family is, is that, uh, that if we ever had a fire, I would grab those four files before I would grab any of the important documents, <laughs> passports, et cetera, financial records. I'd probably take those four files before anything else out of the house because they're so precious to me of franchisees and team, fellow team members thanking me with letters of just how I was able to have some impact on their lives. And to me, CEO at Papa Murphy's, a CEO job puts you at that, puts you in that, at that crossroads where you have a, an opportunity and a responsibility to make a difference in so many people's lives through the decisions you make. And that to me is so motivating and, and, and uh, just a great, a great experience to go through. You know, to me, what I'm learning is it's the same thread. It's about the same service mindset. All has changed is it's a broader scope, more stakeholders. But I'm so glad you talked about your four files or folders because that solves that mystery that I've been always looking at. I always thought I'm the only person on this planet. I'm special. Ken Caldwell sent me a note on the Bigfoot day. You are special, Arjun. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> learning is not only did you define success as KPIs by those letters and you kept them, you also realized the importance of those and you dished those out to all of us when we earned it. Because I really think that's the currency in which Ken Caldwell operates and I really am glad that we are talking about it. So now let's get to Compassion International and your incredible, amazing wife, Sandy, and you, you have been sponsors of the organization for nearly two decades. What made you choose to roll up your sleeves and take compassion to the next level? Because I really feel the little I have learned, and again, you know, I have an NDA, so I'm not going into details, but I really think there should be a Harvard business case study on where heart and brain meets to take a nonprofit to the next level? Yeah, well, thank you for the question. And um, well, Compassion is something that, um, Compassion International is an organization not-for-profit out of uh, 
Colorado Springs, Colorado, and, and uh, uh, it's an organization that I became familiar with. Uh, I went to a, a Christian concert, uh, Michael W. Smith, in 2000, 2001, and uh, found out that the, uh, the person singing, he took an intermission and found out that he, um, he was a donor. He was a big supporter of Compassion International. In fact, he, uh, he talked about the children in poverty that, uh, by name that he had uh, a big role in helping to develop and helping them to get an education, to get food that they needed, uh, to get social development they needed in the, and, uh, and uh, to be just invested in, in a holistic way. He shared that at, a, at, a, at a, the intermission during a concert. And I heard about it and I said, wow, that, that, I, I wanna learn more about that. And uh, I, we ended up uh, choosing a child with Compassion International and uh, sponsoring them and, and, and supporting them uh, from the time they were two and a half, three years old until they uh, were 22, uh, almost 23 years old. So over 20 years. And um, it was through that experience that I first learned about compassion. Um, and I will say what really attracted me was just what I just shared. I, um, I've, always, I've always had a particularly soft heart for children. And I think, um, I think there's all kinds of things in life you know, that different people have a soft heart for. For me, I, even from my mom tells me, even when I was a, a child myself, I just always attracted to children and, and, and trying to, to help them. And I, I certainly enjoyed very much the blessing of being a father to my son. And uh, so I knew that about myself. Secondly, the way I'm wired, the way God wired me, I think, is that um, I attracted people with, with what I call really, really big needs. And uh, I mean, there's needs of all kinds and shapes and flavors, but I think the ones that uh, that I uh, that I attract to is 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 tough ones, poverty, really tough ones like poverty, and uh, compassion. Their our, our mission at Compassion is to release children from poverty in Jesus' name, and that fit very much with me from who I am, what my faith is, uh, what I care and I'm passionate about. Children, it's as we've been talking here, it's it's all about serving, so that fits me really well. Um, so it, it, it just was a, a good fit with, I think, uh, who I am and, 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 and my experience in life. And so I was just humbled when they asked me to come and be a, a part of this with them and this team. And uh, at Compassion, we, we have, uh, uh, just given a sense of the size of the organization, we, uh, we bring in a little over a billion dollars every year, and we have over 2,200,000 children that are in our care uh, that we invest in and, and help them with an education, uh, help them with getting good food and, and good health development, developing their health and taking care of them that way, uh, developing, them, developing them socially and spiritually. So it's a real holistic model. And we do this in 27 countries around the world, uh, mostly countries kind of, most countries fairly close to the equator, whether that's in Asia or Africa or uh, Central South America. And, uh, and to go to the, the core of your question, um, I just, at the heart, at, at my heart position, believe that um, every child born, you know, every child born, whether they're born, they happen to be blessed to be born with, with, uh, with financial means or whether they're, they're born with, in poverty, I believe every child deserves to have the chance to achieve their full potential and to not let 
uh, to not let the lack of money or education or social development, to not let any of that get in their way, but rather to, to develop them that way. And so what's been, um, what's been so great about compassion is it's kind of where my faith and my heart uh, and my family uh, all kind of come together. Um, and, uh, and so it's been, a, it's been a real blessing to work here. Um, so what we've been able to do is uh, just in very similar to what we've been talking about here is I learned after joining Compassion uh, nearly five years ago now um, that, again, having a clear idea of who it is that we serve, children for sure, but also we have the, our partners in the field that help us to serve those children that we need to serve. And also our donors, the folks that, uh, that uh, donate money and time to our organization, how do we support them? And so uh, I was able, what, what I've been able to do is work with the team and figure out ways that we can make sure that everybody in that chain is served uh, and their needs are served. Uh, one, by knowing their needs better, by doing segmentation studies and the things that I've done in the, in the corporate world um, and applying those here so that we know who we serve at the deepest level possible. We know then what they want. And then we know, real importantly, why they want it. Um, and I think I, you know, something I've learned over the years is the really simple formula for me is if you really know who you're serving, if you know at a deeper level what they want, and importantly, why they want it, to me, innovation just happens after that. I mean, I always say people, Whenever you get faced with a challenge, a lot of people will go immediately to, how do we fix that? How do we fix that? And I, I laugh and I say, you know, um, I think if you don't start with the how question, but rather if you start with the who question, who they are, what they want and why they want it, the how will just reveal itself if you go deep enough on the who, the what and the why and invest in that part of it. And that's what we're on a path to do right now. With it. We don't say we don't call them our customers. We say the neighbor at Compassion, we talk about the neighbors that we serve. Uh, you know, uh, our faith, uh, my faith uh, tells me that uh, uh, we need to love our neighbor as ourself. And uh, to me, the way you love the neighbor, your neighbor as yourself is you start by, by, by asking a lot of questions and getting to know them at a deeper level so that you know what they want and why they want it. So you know best how to, how to, how to best serve them. Yeah. I just had the pleasure on reflecting on the questions last few days. And what I realized was you were destined to be in the service industry because that's where your heart is. And this is bizarre. Like, just hear me out on how your evolution happened from serving in the marketing just to get, and again, it's always about start with who, what, why, and then how. From there, it broadened to multi-stakeholders, and now you're making an impact on 2.2 million plus kids. And I look at this to be intergenerational because all the previous impacts were this meal, then lifestyle of that franchisee. Now with these kids, you'll put them in a position that they will make amazing better choices and they will take care of their kids and everything else at a better level. So I really was fascinated to see how service changes the world. And kudos to you, my friend, for how you consistently make an impact. 
but this question, I'm, this statement was just to set you up as a friend, okay? Can I be honest with you, okay? With success, people change. What have you done to not change and be humble? And the reason I say that, whether I meet you on a normal time or when we met on one of the toughest days in our life when Trey Hall, our coolest buddy, passed away, it was the same Ken Caldwell. Like, how do you not change with all success? Well, it's um, I you know appreciate you saying that, and I um, I think um, you know um, I think one of the things for me is um, years ago uh, I uh, I was in a um, uh, a really a serious accident, so I was uh, riding my bicycle and in the morning with. Uh, our good friend Trey Hall and and I was uh, we were riding on a training ride one morning on our bicycles on a outside of Wichita, Kansas, and a uh, uh, a woman on her way to work. She uh, was on her way to work, driving in the opposite lane and and coming into work at going around 50 miles an hour or so, and she fell asleep. And when she fell asleep, she came across the center line and and she hit hit us head on uh, on our bicycle. So um, uh, a lot of time. In intensive care, a lot of time in the hospital, and learning to walk again, and all that. And um, it was through that time that I think what God did in my life was He really helped me um, see one His love for me and how He had a plan for my life and healing me and and helping me to to uh, eventually become. Uh, I was single at the time. This was in 1991, and. Uh, um, and he, his blessing of me being having the chance to become a husband and a father, and then after that, a, a blessing to be able to lead people. Those three things, I mean, if I just really boil it down, I, um, you know, as a single person in a hospital fighting for my life and not knowing if I was going to keep my left leg and my part of my right arm and uh, not knowing if I'd walk again, as a single person at that time, I can remember wondering, well, who's that, you know, I wanted to be a, I want kids someday. I want to be, I have a wife and, you know, I can remember wondering, well, who's going to, who's going to want me, you know? Um, and so through a lot of prayer uh, and answers to prayer, as I was able to get through and, and, and heal and learn to walk again and meet my, my now wife, Sandy, and, uh, and then the blessing of having a child, Casey, our son, um, I just valued, <laughs> I valued that it's such a, I just, you know, to, to have a, to have a, to have a, a wife that loves you unconditionally and a son that loves you unconditionally that you can invest in love unconditionally that what a, what a gift and what a blessing. And, um, and then I just continued to work in the corporate world and give my best and try to do my work, my hardest. And. And things event it just happened, and all of a sudden I was a CMO, and then I was, you know, a CEO, and and um, I was just so thankful for the opportunity to lead people. And to me, what leadership, what the gift of leadership is that, um, in that role I told you about earlier as CEO, where I've got franchise owners depending on me, I've got team members depending on me that I need to serve. 
I've got customers I need to serve and the financial community I need to serve. And oh, by the way, what's more important than all that is I need to make sure I'm serving my wife, Sandy, and my son, Casey. I think it's when you put yourself at the crossroads of all those people that you need to serve, it's very humbling. I, I, I remember I would tell my wife that every day I come home and I could just think of all the, all the places I didn't serve as well as I needed to. You know, people I'd run into during the day that I hadn't given the time to that I needed to, or people that I hadn't said thank you to for something they did for me or somebody I hadn't encouraged. And so to me, my point of that is it's extremely humbling. It's like, I never had a day where I said, wow, I nailed that day. It was some days were better than others, but every day I could, I, I, I go back and I go, oh man, I, I did not give the time to that person I needed to. I did not, I did not authentically thank that person like I needed to. And, and so you next day you say, well, I couldn't do anything about yesterday, but today, today is going to be the day. <laughs> and then at the end of that day, again, you go through that same process and repeat. And I think it's humbling. And the reason my point of that is, I think anything that you put yourself into that humbles you and, 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 and reminds you that you have not figured it out yet, you need to continue to get better. And, 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 it, and by humbling, I mean, gets you outside of yourself and reminds you of the you're here to serve your spouse. You're here to serve and love your child. And you're here to serve and love the people that, that report to you. And I, and I kind of think in that order. Um, that to me, um, that's why I never want to retire. <laughs> um, it's, not, it's not for money. It's not for position and prestige. I don't want to retire because I think for me, maybe not for everybody, but for me, being at that crossroads of those people that you're serving and is a constant reminder that humbles you. And, uh, and that's a good thing at the end of the day. That is a good thing. Um, and for me, at least, that's, that's what helps me, helps me in, that, in that journey. You know, thank you for sharing that. And as you were talking about, you don't you know, ever see yourself retiring. I was writing down what could be the title of this conversation which is service DNA, because I think that's the, what defines you is if it's in your DNA, that's who you are. Like you cannot change who you are. So as we wrap this conversation, I just want to take you to this hypothetical fun place by saying, if Ken Caldwell today just meets this young man, 16 year old Ken Caldwell, and this super active 100 year old Ken Caldwell too walks in, what would this simple conversation look like between these three individuals? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question, Arjun. I, I am. Um, well, it's funny too. I'll tell you this. Um, when you say about Ken Cowell when he's a hundred years old, you made me laugh because our family, uh, it's a strange thing. Maybe it's our, our, uh, our Kansas roots or simple life roots or whatever, but my grandfather lived to be 107 years old. Wow. And was very active till the day he passed. And uh, um, he was the oldest man in Kansas when he passed away, the oldest man in Kansas. And his parents, my great grandparents, who I'm named after, they were uh, both nearly 104 when they passed away and were married almost 80 years. Um, so we have like uh, five members of my direct 
descendants of, that lived to be over 100 and, and two of them over 105. So, so maybe, uh, maybe that will actually happen. Your, 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 your yeah, hypothetical question might happen. happens, <laughs> happens with service. That's what matters. We'll, we'll what see. I don't know. Uh, but, but, um, but I think it's a great question. And I think, I think what in that conversation, I think that um, when I think about that 16-year-old talking to the to me today or that 100-year-old, um, I think keeping it simple, you know, um, not overcomplicating it. I think sometimes when I go to the bookstore uh, or now go online and look at different book titles and think look at all the different self-help books and all the different strategies people have and all there's there's some value in all of, of reading all of that. But I think you could start to overcomplicate it and make it harder than it needs to be. And I think my 16-year-old Ken, Kenny at the time would say to me today, keep it simple, keep it, keep the main things the main things. At the time of 16, it was all about, hey, who are these people that need their lawns mowed and need to be served? How do I go to them and every day ask how I can help them and, and do what they ask me to do and, and just build relationship with them? And um and that was my whole business plan. I never spent one in my entire lawn business for almost 10 years, never spent a dollar on advertising ever. It was all word of mouth. And, um, and so that would be, I think, my 16-year-old self. I think the 100-year-old the self, uh, the older I get, the older I get, um, it's kind of funny. I was joking with my wife. I said, you know, maybe you guys can relate to this, but when I was in my 20s, and, 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 you know, in my early in my career, I remember thinking, okay, all right, I got this figured out. Like, I know how this works. And then I started to have to manage, a, I got promoted and somebody reported to me and I went, oh, wow. Okay. This is different. I, I got to figure out how to manage this person, lead this person and, and serve them. And then I got a bigger team and a bigger team. And whether it's in my twenties, my thirties, my forties, and now my fifties, almost 60, every time I said, okay, I got to figure it out now. <laughs> and, and what I figured out from that is I still don't have it figured out. And the hundred year old self, I think would say to me, the older I get, the more I realize it's not about me. Um, it, it is not. It, it, the, when I think about each of my days, I think the, to the degree that I can not look at my to-do list each day when I start my day, but actually a practice I started a few years ago was to take the names of each of my direct reports. And when I start my day, I have a little time before my, my, my Zoom call start, my conference call start and all that. And I have a little bit of time and I just take a little bit of time and look at each of my direct reports names. I have a file for each of them. And I go, what's on their to-do list today? What's on their to-do list? And I try to guess. And then I try to think about how do I, how much of my day today can I spend getting barriers that are in the way of my team members out of their way <laughs> and, the, and, and almost to help them knock down their to-do list. And the older I get, the more I think that that shouldn't just be a portion of my job. That's probably my job. <laughs> and, um, and every year I try to put a higher percentage of time on how do I help them with their barriers and things on their to-do list and not things on mine? And when I do that, I find out that my to-do list also gets better because by being proactive and helping them be successful, a whole bunch of my issues go away as well. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's kind of a holistic uh, look at it.
I think the hundred year old Ken to answer your question would say to me today, it's not about you. It, it's, it's about the people that are placed in your path that you're here to serve, make it about them and everything else will take care of itself. And I love that first part about when you talked about being comfortable with the fact that you haven't figured everything out because being obsessed about knowing everything, I think is a killer. And the second thing, when you talked about barrier and you know, there's a part of me is decently analytical. I try to tabulate a lot of things. In all my conversations with CEOs, I have found there's only four tasks a CEO has. Number one is seeing the vision, not just from your point of view, but seeing the vision from each of your direct reports point of view and helping them see, because sometimes we get lost and our leaders provide us vision. Second is breaking barriers. Because not just because you have resources, you have a vision to break the barriers. You just see something that we don't see. Third is bringing resources. Okay. And that order I really loved is if you bring me resources before I break you break barriers, it doesn't work. And the fourth is the most important thing is be a cheerleader. And a definition of a cheerleader is a cheerleader is usually never in the picture when you win. A cheerleader's picture is when you cry when the team loses. So that was an amazing example a leader had told me is just getting out of the way, let the team celebrate like crazy. And I really love how you connected the dots. So Ken, this has been a fascinating conversation. I truly appreciate it. Any final thoughts? And do you have any questions of me? Because you were so kind to ask answer every question. If you have a question, I better try to answer. <laughs> well, no, I, I thank you, one, for the time uh, and the interest in the, in the questions you asked, Arjun, and, and uh, really, really appreciate it and uh, your friendship over the years. And yeah, I do. I, you know, I think I, I, my question for you, I think, is um, I love I. I love collecting best practices, you know, so it's like, even when I was, you know, knew as we were, we were pregnant and going to become, I was going to become a dad. I remember like, who are my favorite dads out there and, and uh, who, who are uh, starting with my own and who do I think, you know, does this best. And I'm envious of you because you have this role where you go and talk to people uh, that you respect and, and ask them questions about, you know, uh, advice and wisdom and best practices. And so, I think my question of you is just, um, um, what are some of the you know top headlines that have stood out to you for all these people that you've interviewed, and uh, when and when you're seeking kind of the wisdom and the best practices that they've learned over the years, any big, you know, uh, big headlines, either your favorite or maybe ones you've heard the most, or what what uh, really curious as to kind of what the your, the, the biggest pieces of wisdom that you've received over the years? So to me, you laugh at this because it's like each one speak a different language, but they're giving the same message. Okay. Like if you listen to like the message is always the same. The message is a V message of a team. Like, of course, there are a few you can listen to this. I, 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 and you know very well, okay, Arjun, today is the day for me to eat vegetables. Tomorrow, <laughs> I will get back to dessert again. But that's the thing, whether it's you or Blaine Hurst, Panera, Lane Cardwell, one of the most respected people in the restaurant industry, like amazing, amazing drinker guy. When you listen to all of them, they believe that they know success is how to get 
beam across the finish line. And of course, one of my favorites is Blaine Hurst, who gave me a break in life when I just was questioning, what the heck is this guy seeing in me? And this is one practice that he did, which he calls it the culture of dissatisfaction. He felt if you have R&D confined between four walls of an organization, the organization is bound to doom. Every person's responsibility. And I'll give you an example. So at, Pizza, at Papa John's, we were having this challenge of rolling out mushrooms, fresh mushrooms, and the R&D and procurement, they couldn't roll it. And I found a clever way to do it. So Blaine praised like crazy. Now we are in his office, sitting there, and he sits back, looks at me, and says, yesterday's headline says, Arjun Rockstar, what are you doing tomorrow? And I was sorry to use the word pissed. Okay. I just felt like, come on, man, today is my day. He said, no, Arjun, for your yesterday's accomplishment, I pay you, give you a bonus. But you have to show me why I need you tomorrow. And that was the big aha that I really learned. And this was another man, this man, in the four or five years I worked with him, for him, he never told me what to do. Like in any situation, he would look at me and then I would say, so like, what would you do? He would look at and say, if I told you what I would do, why do I need you? And I would say, okay, got it. Because, you know, to me, I really think it's that common people thread. And, you know, when I start looking at Blaine Hurst, and the final thing I want to bring it back to you is individuals like you who haven't changed and who have increased the source of their impact. And that's something I think, and I think I talked to you briefly about is I see people perform at three levels. Level one is people who are done good at what they do. Then you add a different axis. People also do it with a smile, like Carmen Lemon, if you remember. Any project you put Carmen, her smile made her the, like I would pick her as number one draft choice any day because of the positive energy she brought, okay? And then there are third dimension of people who make an impact on other people's life, okay? Those are the contagious people, those are your mentors. And you know, that to me, I just wanted to share some random thoughts, hope that helps, so. Absolutely, absolutely, thank you. Thanks for sharing that. So Ken, this was fascinating. And to me, I really think that it's all about the service as you talked about. And I don't know about others, but this is a podcast conversation. I'm listening to it at least three to five times because I'm a little slow. And finally, I have to finish with a little shout out for somebody in our team who always needed a little extra love, Mr. Henderson. Any final <laughs> words for Mr. Henderson when he listens so he doesn't feel left out in this conversation? <laughs> Absolutely. Jim, we love you, man. Jim, we love you. <laughs> Thanks, Ken. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Arjun. You've been listening to Secrets to Win Big with Arjun Sen, founder and CEO of Zen Mango, top brand growth driver and a former Fortune 500 executive who has been called one of the most marketing intelligent minds in the business. To learn more, visit www.zenmango.com. Share this podcast with your friends and subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.